Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Why do theater when you can do film? Why do film when you can do theater? Why do one when you can do both? Why do both when you can do VR? Director Dan Haas and director-actor Taylor Myers are an ambitious pair of artists based in New York City who grappled with these pressing questions at length before finally coming to a conclusion. The answer? Just do all three. The duo went abroad earlier this year after conceiving the idea to fly to Ireland, rent a castle, and perform an immersive theater adaptation of Shakespeare's immortal play, Hamlet. Then they thought, well, why would we limit this experience to just a few people? So the theater makers brought along a crew and decided to become filmmakers as well. The result is Hamlet and the Golden Veil, a feature-length film that will be appearing around the festival circuit next year. All of this output from a single independent production is made even more impressive considering that in the process, they also managed to secure funding for a companion VR piece as well. I invited Dan and Taylor onto the show to discuss their multi-pronged effort to make the most of their 11 days in Ireland, and the difficulties in translating from the stage to the screen in all different aspects of production. From screenwriting to acting to directing, they share a few tips on how to keep things running smoothly across every medium. Okay, (laughs) I'm going to start by asking you guys to introduce yourselves so the audience can get familiar with your voices, starting with Dan. Uh, Hi, I'm Dan Hasse. I co-directed the film with Taylor and did the adaptation, and uh, I'll speak with a slight lisp so you can tell us apart. (laughs) Um, I am Taylor Myers. I co-directed this film with Dan. Uh, I played Hamlet, um, and I'm the artistic director of Roll the Bones, the producing company who brought it to Ireland. Okay, so then let's start off with your producing company, since you've just mentioned it. Um, Taylor, you are an actor in the New York theater scene, I would say. Yes, is that fair to say? I would say that's fair, yeah. Okay, cool, good. Um, How did you get into film production? (laughs) Uh, So, Roll the Bones does immersive theater. Most of my work is immersive theater. I'd say that is a clarification. So, what what would you define immersive theater as? It's a tough question there, John. Um, (laughs) Heavy hitters off the bat. Yep. Um, I would define uh, some some genre of immersive sh- of, of immersive theater as uh, theater that audience members um, experience um, from a perspective that is within the set there's there's no traditional fourth wall there's no traditional proscenium arch cool so then sorry to interrupt you back to how did the theater turn into film well um, the th- the idea for this project originally was not one of film um, Roll the Bones makes site-specific immersive theater, so we're always looking for fabulous places to put art into. Um, And a friend of mine uh, just got back from Ireland. This was, what, a year and a couple months ago, July 2016, I believe. Um, He had just returned from traveling Europe, and he was showing me photographs of his travels, and he was like, look, Taylor, you're never going to believe uh, where we stayed. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know, Jake, maybe maybe I will. Show me some pictures. So he shows me these pictures of this incredible castle and the countryside in Ireland a few hours southwest of Dublin. And he's showing me all these pictures. I'm like, man, this is nuts. And he's like, yeah, you're never going to believe how much we paid. I'm like, you know, maybe I will. Tell me, how much did you pay, Jake? And he shoots me this extraordinarily low number. 
Um, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That much for a room in a castle. What a life. And he's like, no, 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 that's, that's for the whole castle. Um, and so then the idea spiraled into, well, Jesus, maybe it would be cheaper to send a bunch of people to Ireland and do some work there than to put up work in New York, which was actually true. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the idea originally became, what if we brought 10-ish actors out to Ireland uh, and nobody but... And um, and we just lived in this world for a couple of weeks. We rehearsed Hamlet here beforehand. We came fully memorized, and we just ran around this castle with no audience, no camera, nothing. Just an artistic exploration of what would happen if we put eight to ten people in a castle and had them live and breathe these worlds for a little bit. Now, did anyone eventually see the play in Ireland at the theater? Or well, at the uh, castle? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, well, so that idea lasted for like mm, 45 seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we were like, that's never going to happen. Um, it's a and, big ask to ask a bunch of actors to dedicate that much time when there's no tangible product. Yeah. Um, so the next step was finding a way to sort of capture it. Yeah. Obviously, my original uh, thought was, great, we'll make an immersive show, but it's always so hard with immersive shows because, well, you want to have a, a, a fabulous locale, but the more fabulous the locale sometimes represents, the harder the audience base to get there. Um, so, you know, what are, how are we going to sell an immersive show in the Irish countryside with a bunch of people who have literally never heard those two words put next to each other before? Um, and then we came up with the idea of a film and how that might be a much better way to... Um, harvest whatever was going to go into this um, and and have a much wider reach and and might actually be the right project for this. Um, Yes, we did have an immersive show in all seven stories of the castle up on the battlements in the two chalets over the multi-acre grounds uh, down a ravine into a little camp that was built there. And we had two performances where 50 audience members a night um, came and explored completely autonomously, autonomously, um, including the Earl of Ross and the Duchess of Ross. Whoa. <laughs> I, I, I guess to sort of put this into context, we I think we had 11 shooting days and two immersive theater days. Um, and so, one day collecting the virtual reality. Right, which is a whole another story that we'll, we'll go into. Um so the the undertaking basically required that any time an actor wasn't on set filming, they were in another room of the castle rehearsing for the immersive show. Um, so there was never there basically wasn't a wasted minute. Um, either we were shooting the feature film uh, as a unit, or people were breaking off into groups and uh, devising theater within the castle. Um, so there really there was there was sort of a day off. There was a day off for the film crew um, while the actors were teching their immersive show. But for the actors, it was full bore for two weeks. Yeah, the whole time we had the most intense schedule I've ever seen, um, and it was you know split up into four or five different categories: film shoot, uh, immersive rehearsal, uh, practical necessities like somebody's running into town to get groceries or whatever, um, and a couple of the categories. And then the last one was was free time, and that was the only play. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like uh, maybe this is uh, uh, for for listeners. I, I I don't know if I I went to film school and and there. Uh, there was sort of this vibe in film school that um, pushed you to sort of create the largest company possible and have you know PAs for every department and and uh, 
and 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 really sort of push the professionalism in a very specific way. Um, I think our professionalism uh, was there in terms of scheduling and rehearsal and the way everyone was was treated. Uh, but <laughs> we we scaled back. There were there were no PAs on set. Basically, there was no one to turn to and say, "Hey, can you grab me that?" Like if if you were a department head, you were the you were the department. Um, and so it's boiled down to basically 12 key crew. Um, and it turns out uh, you, you can make a movie that way um, as long as everyone in their respective departments is, is, uh, amazing. An, is, an, is, an, is amazing and sort of an artist in their own right and um, uh, sort of self-starter in that way. Um, you can make a movie in a foreign country in 11 shooting days. So then what uh, crew members did you bring? What were the core 12 um, we brought uh, well, so I guess tracking back to what, what we were talking about, where you know the genesis was a bunch of actors in a castle with no audience. Um, once we moved past that stage of development, uh, I came on to do the adaptation, uh, and then from there uh, we brought on Corey, our DP. Uh, we brought on Ben, our production designer, and uh, and basically filled every essential, I'd say every essential crew position. Yeah, Yuri, uh, some, our, our main like. Um uh, producer in terms of, of like logistical producer um, was there every step of the way too. Yeah, and and I think uh, there was some double duty. Obviously, hair and makeup was also doing script supervision. Uh, costumes was also doing prop supervision. Um, uh, production design was also doing project management. Um, but for but you know for the most part, every sort of necessary position was filled in some way um, or shared. And we found uh, a variety of, of needs along the way. Um, we weren't like, okay, cool, here's the project, here are 12 positions that we're going to fill. Um, the group started, I think, with like 12 people and ended up with 18 um, because along the way we we kept butting up against needs that we thought maybe we had the personnel to to take care of, thought maybe we could you know all scrounge together ourselves and do it, and then realized again and again that no, 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 that, that department needs somebody who is going to like just do that department. Um, up until, what, two weeks before we left, yeah. um, when we added our final, our final um, you know, crew member, our final list of personnel was finally complete. I also think it's, it's probably worth mentioning that we, in this hiring process, um, we were really only hiring uh, people that we had worked with, uh, you know, many times before. Taylor and I have worked on probably upwards of ten shows before, um, so there was this kind of sense like, I may not have gone to film school, but by God, I can figure out production design uh, for film in a couple months if you know I have enough heads up. And you know, people who had done production design in theater or, um, you know, the sort of I guess the 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 real uh, gauge we were using to sort of uh, to determine whether or not we wanted to bring someone on was like, are they an artist? Do they have sort of um, artistic impulses? Um, and can they learn the craft in time for our departure from uh, LaGuardia or JFK? And can we live that with them in a castle for two weeks? Yeah, there were no assholes on this set. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't it, have worked. It just wouldn't be possible because, you know, it's like you... Uh, uh, in addition to everything you're doing, you got to wake up and like make oatmeal for 20 people. And yeah. we had a rotation going. And, and again, it was like organized and scheduled and professional. But there was this like extra bit of sweat equity that went into every aspect of the production. And in a similar way, efficiency was one of the like most key components of the entire job, whether that means that like 
everybody's kind of doing two jobs or, or the majority of people are doing two um, or some people are doing three. Like everyone's lending hands, which means that the crew is extremely efficient because there's so much work to be done split up under so few people that um, everybody works really hard and does an amazing job of getting it all done. But also in the rehearsal process, we were rehearsing for, again, three different projects, a feature film, an immersive show, and a VR piece. And so to like rehearse a script and and generally we use the same script the immersive show had a ton of other devised scenes that we came up with while we were there but like the core text uh shakespeare's text that we used dan's adaptation um was rehearsed in a way that was like not necessarily for the stage it wasn't blocked uh it wasn't it wasn't um built in a way that was like now we're done with the show but rather it was rehearsed um so that the core of it the real understanding of the scenes, the relationships, the characters, and what was happening was nailed out. And so we were we were done with that when we were in New York. That was what four to six months of rehearsal did for us. We understood the show the best that we were going to understand the show. We had rehearsal after rehearsal of table work and conversation about lines and, and every specific detail of that so that when we got to the castle, no matter what the space looked like, whether you're doing it for an audience of five people in the room at the time or a camera that's shooting from different angles, whatever it is, or, we're ready for Or that. a virtual reality 360 rig. Yeah. Um, I was listening to uh, the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago when you talked to Flying Lotus, and he said, uh, "I make movies like I make my music," and uh, which is inspiring uh, to hear. And and I think uh, to sort of like take from that, we made this movie the way we make our theater, which is to say, we rehearse the shit out of it, um, and we treated our time on set the same way we treated uh, like a tech rehearsal in theater. And in theater, at least in off-Broadway theater, you get like a week, maybe two if you're lucky to fully tech a show, which is exactly how much time we had to shoot. And every take was kind of like opening night, you know? Um, where, yeah. where, yeah, the nerves are high and everyone's running full steam and we're just making it happen. Yeah, so we did probably, <laughs> I mean, if I'm being generous, like on average we did three or four takes. Um, but for the most part, people... Uh, nailed it in one and um, I, because there was this kind of theatrical spirit to the production um, and I think it's a it, it is apparent in the performances there is that like extra like adrenaline fire behind the eyes of like I'm I'm nailing this right now like the the performance I'm giving right now is the one is the the one we're taking home um, and there are no reshoots too like you know we we can't afford to fly back to Ireland um, and a large part of that, I think, gratitude uh, is for our actors who are, A, all remarkable, and B, um, trained and practiced theater actors. So they're used to rehearsing it like this and then getting up and having the stage and having the audience and having the lights and, and hitting it night after night after night. Like that level of practice um, is something that made it possible. I think that, that a lot of them were able to just like, and, and many of them had done film before, but a few of them had never done any film. Um, uh, were able to have the same part of their brain that recognizes like lights, stage, audience, recognize the camera in the same way and turn on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult transition, I think, the uh, for the actor, especially to make from the stage to film, you know? It's, uh, I don't even know. It's so It's been so hard for me to describe that, that difference without saying the word like stagey in air quotes because I don't like that word, and it doesn't really fully do what I'm talking about justice. But there is the tendency for actors who go from the stage 
to film to kind of like uh, overact a little bit or over emote a little bit. Play it to totally. the back of the house. Yeah, play I, it to the back of the house. That's I think I think we were fortunate in that we're working with heightened text with a ton of verse and and poetry. Um, so a certain a certain amount of bigness and and uh, I guess the pejorative word for that would be like hamminess is kind of mm. allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we we sort of walked that line, well, so a specific example, um, there's a speech in Act Four, and we kind of weren't sure um, uh, we weren't sure how intense we wanted it to be. So we uh, when we ran it, that was one of the, the takes where we did do more than four. We did six, and on each one, uh, Taylor gave a sort of different range of emotions, start like sort of on a spectrum from like very small, very quote unquote like filmic performance, mm-hmm. all the way to like you know batshit bananas. <laughs> um, and I think we ended up going with the fourth out of six. Cool. So on the slightly on the above average spectrum of intensity and 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 uh, theatricality. Uh, which I think is within the spirit of the film, uh, but not like not the number six would probably fill like a Broadway sized house mm-hmm. um, and was way too big. Yeah, um, I think there are two other things to to keep in mind here, though, that like one, we knew what we were doing with that specifically. Um, and and so the filming style for that specific speech, a lot of it takes well. It's kind of broken into two parts, but a lot of it takes place from like behind me, like the the camera coverage for Hamlet as you're watching him speak this speech is not like close up or is not like a, a big screen filler where I'm, you know, talking to anyone at all. But more the camera follows um, the character of Hamlet. So so the space is filled kind of in the opposite direction, which is a, li- a, a nice way to like get a lot of that energy, but also kind of mask some of that size. Um, and the other thing I think also, again, is is gratitude for our actors, because in speaking about the difference between um, the stage work that one does and the camera work that one does, um, I think there's a uh, well, there, there, there are a lot of, I mean, a lot of things to get into there that we won't get into. But in this specific instance, um, a sensitivity um, and a, a, and a very express sensitivity for what exactly is happening in any space at any time. And I think that is something that also made it so uh, possible for them to do such amazing work in the immersive show too, because set, like that is exactly what you are doing there. You're like reading a space and your audience and like how you are filling a, a, a room. Um, with not only your volume, but the performance itself. And so recognizing the sensitivity as we all play against each other and there's a camera there, it's, it's, it's an attention um, that, that makes it so it's not like, well, you know, now I'm stage acting versus now I'm film acting. Like there is, a, there is always a liquid spectrum. Um, something that we found sort of useful in the rehearsal room as well um, specifically when we were rehearsing scenes for the film is uh, we, let's say we ran the scene four times and you know I give notes between each run um, I would also watch the scene from varying distances and sort of like levels of intrusiveness so one version I'd watch from the far corner sort of where you might put a camera for a wide shot another performance I would watch from right behind Taylor and then switch to behind Elise Kibler, who played Ophelia, um, and have them getting used to a body in space, I think is is helpful, not just for theater actors, but for anyone, um, especially since this production lives and dies by its performances. Um, it doesn't have the pyrotechnics that um, 
a 75 millimeter Kenneth Branagh production has. Um, I mean, but it's also the thing that that like lives and dies by his performances because it's Hamlet. We all know it. <laughs> right. Everybody's seen it. Yeah. So, like, is it good? Well, <laughs> it's, it's the text isn't any different. Well, so what about for those people who haven't seen Hamlet? You know, like, how did you decide to? How did you adapt it, Dan, in order to make it kind of palpable for people who may not have a uh, history of Shakespeare to enjoy? Sure. Um, well, I think it, it ultimately comes down to. Uh, how you cut the text and how you edit or abridge the text. Obviously, we're not doing the full four-hour uncut version. Um, so it, it does, in a sense, it comes down to attention span um, and uh, and also a, a sensitivity in terms of um, in terms of where you cut. I, I, the sort of rule of thumb for myself, at least, is I, I, I never cut a full scene. I never lop out a scene. Um, it's it's always trimming um, so that the narrative arc, which in which really is the emotional arc, remains intact. Um, the story of Hamlet is super easy to follow. It's a revenge tragedy. It's sort of like the er revenge tragedy. Um, uh, the nuances of the language I think are 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 can be tricky, but uh, spoken by talented actors. And honestly. Uh, I'm revealing my, my bias, but spoken with an American accent, I think actually makes them far more intelligible and sort of palatable to a modern audience. Um, modern American audience, anyhow. Yeah, and, and we have actors who have done have done so many Shakespeare plays that these words fit in their mouth in a really unique way and without sacrificing meter or rhetoric um, are able to speak these lines clearly and as if they are, you know, think, coining these phrases in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like, and I think this is one of the things that also uh, helped so much having such skilled and practiced stage actors is because the, the text itself is the base for this entire thing. And so to ask a film actor who has great film technique, knows exactly where the camera is at all times, knows where to look, knows all of the craft of film acting, but has never touched Shakespeare before because that's not generally what you do on film, um, is going to have a much harder time saying obsequious sorrow with any semblance of like fluidity than somebody who has said obsequious sorrow a million times in a million different ways and all the other words that like fill up and make Shakespeare so uh, efficient and beautiful, um, they're able to do that in a way that reads more naturally on camera even when you get that close mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So we've touched on the transition from writing a play or adapting a play to film, adapting stage performances to film. What about adapting directing to film from the stage? What were the what was that transition like for you? Oh man, it's awesome. I almost wasn't prepared to handle the level of control that I was given. I'm so used to rehearsing with actors for four weeks, doing a week or two, if you're lucky, of tech, um, giving them notes during previews, if you even have them, and uh, and then saying like have fun. Um, I, I, ha- there's, I have a sort of ongoing bit with uh, this actor, Constantine Malhias, who plays Rosencrantz and Guildenstern um, as twins um, in the sort of like nutty professor sense um, in the film. And the running bit is uh, um, I'll give him a note and he'll say, yeah, yeah, that's great. But um, I'm going to get on stage and do whatever I want. You know, and like, obviously he's kidding, but but there is like an element of truth to that of uh, uh I don't get to go into the edit bay yeah. and be like, uh, I know they like take one, but I'm going to take take two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, Constantine uh, doesn't have, doesn't is not able to go into the edit bay and say that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a little bit, I, there is like a, a permissible level of dicking around 
in plays, uh, which I think is what makes them beautiful from night to night. Uh, but on film, you could tell everyone was kind of like, this is for my career. I can't, <laughs> you know, like I can't just, uh, I can't burn a preview and make a ridiculous choice because it's fun to me or makes the show on the whole livelier, right? It's, um, yeah, we, I have don't, to, we don't have the time. We don't have the shots. Yeah, I need to keep it consistent and within the, the world and, and all that. There is something great about uh, having control of the sort of rhythm of a scene besides just the way you rehearse it, but also a sort of like meta level of control of the pace of a scene, knowing how you're going to edit it. Um, it's just adding a different dimension. Mm-hmm. Great. But then sort of making those choices behind the camera, um, what was that like as far as, you know, framing and blocking? How did that differ from, you know, stage play? Um, if I'm being totally honest, uh uh, Corey and don't I be, don't be um, <laughs> okay so the, guys the film is really bad um, <laughs> no if I'm being totally honest uh, Corey and I shot listed um, to the best of our ability uh, again there's no location scout right, right like we yeah. we had never been to the castle we couldn't afford uh, you know a two day recce where we fly to Ireland and yeah. fly back and say guys here's the floor plan um, although we did have sort of blueprints and yeah we, we had blueprints and photos and ground plans and like some of it was accurate and we taped <laughs> out to the best of our ability what the floor plan would look like in our rehearsal studio right um but for the most part, Dan has this great knack for getting into any space and saying, OK, so this is exactly the size of the space that we'll be in. So really, we were fluid. We were able to do it in any space because every rehearsal space was different. Yeah. And I, they were all exactly the size of right. the space. I lied to them. I was like, yeah, this <laughs> 10 foot by 10 foot rehearsal studio is exactly the size of our main hall in the castle. Yeah. Um, uh, but so when I was with Corey, we, we did shot list as much as humanly possible and broke the shot listing down into beats, at, you know, at, at, as best we could. Um, but at the end of the day, when we got on set, um, I was leaving a lot of that a lot of that decision making to Corey. Um, and fortunately, uh, we met on the first day of film school. We worked on many, many crews together. Um I trust every impulse in his body. I mean, he is so insanely I. talented. Um, there, uh, there was a sort of like, um, uh, you know, I, I can't even describe it. Like he, we, we had twin brain for two weeks and um, we even wore the same matching onesie for two weeks. <laughs> I have no idea why. That was uh, not an artistic choice or was that just No, like that was like a, this castle, <laughs> this castle is really freaking cold. So oh, we okay. bought, or, snowmobile onesies uh, yeah. <laughs> matching ones and the two of them wore them the entire time uh, yeah there was kind of like a Tweedledee and Tweedledum thing going on on set also anytime that Dan and I would have uh, uh, disagreements or, or, or an issue with like what exactly we thought the coverage would be or, or, or should be or what exactly we thought the performance should be anytime where it came down to like we're not going to agree on this Corey was always the tiebreaker and no matter what we always agreed with him and he was yeah. I mean as far as we can tell he was always right or we'd shoot it both ways and say we'll let Phil the editor decide yeah because we also trust him innately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he's much smarter than we are. And and the actors might actually trust him more than they trust us. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah. Speaking of, like, people I went to school with and had done many projects before, and actually Phil, um, <laughs> uh, Phil at one point did the set design for my first off-Broadway show. He Again, this is a classic example of, like, artist who is smart who I, I trust yeah. their their impulses, who can figure out a craft if you give them enough time. Phil is a professional editor filmmaker. That is what he does. Um, but I'd seen some of his uh, visual art as well and uh, asked him to design an off-Broadway set, and he did it. Um, so I, for I guess for 
if if this is going to be educational in any way because we're not famous so it, it's not it, people aren't listening to it for well, that hey, speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> people we tune in every week here, for john fusco film school podcast um but if there is sort of any edu- educational merit to this i i think it would be it comes down to creating a company so rather than creating a film crew which is again when you're in film school people tell you um hire this person who does exactly this, like check their references, make sure their work is good, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's, there, there isn't any attention paid to uh, how you form professional relationships and um, how you sort of evaluate someone as an artist. And, you know, these the, the people we brought on as our sort of key crew, most of them are also producers in some way, shape, or form, um, which, again, I think is works to everyone's advantage because take, for example, our production designer, um, Ben Wyganik, um, he's also one of our most dedicated producers, and I don't blame him because when he looks at the film, he sees his work on screen, and he is as motivated as the rest of us to get this done. Like, I see so many kids coming out of film school who have their sort of, like, dream feature film, and the and I, I went through this at one point when I made a short film where it's like, no... I, won't, I shouldn't say nobody, but but it's hard to get someone to give as much of a shit as you do. It, nigh impossible, especially if you're doing... You know, for us, we had some we had some leeway because it's Hamlet. A lot of people care about Hamlet. Uh, we were going to a castle in Ireland. A lot of people want to go to a castle in Ireland. It's it's an adventure, and we had uh, something for everyone. We had a film project, an immersive theater project, and a cutting edge virtual reality project. Like literally, you could sign up for the project and find whatever niche you wanted. Yeah, I think if there's if there's any bit of advice I would give uh, to like making a project happen, to turning an idea into a a reality. Um, it would be two-pronged. The first of which would be just have it be a damn good idea. Um, that is the best thing that you can sell to other talented people that you want on board. Make them want to come with you. Nobody cares about your movie if it's just a movie that you wrote and it's a story that you came up with and that's about that. It, it's it's the same as, as being pitched any other film. Have something really remarkable about it that people want to be a part of. Um, and the second would just be be extremely selective with who you choose um, and and don't hire people for jobs, hire people for people. So, okay, I want to ask you guys about the VR component too, you know, as we're, uh, as we're getting into taking full advantage of the time you're given at a specific location. That seems like a really smart thing to do. How difficult was it to add that portion on to the immersive theater part? of the project. So the VR was actually uh, short um, in terms of, it was it was the smallest in terms of scheduling for all three of these uh, uh, branches of the project. Um, it only took one shooting day. Uh, the rehearsals we did all here in New York. Um, and by the time we got there and by the time the team from National Theater of London got there uh, and by the time the team from VR City in London got there, um, they came the night before. They saw the immersive show. And then the next day we woke up um, and we shot all day the VR piece. So how were those two, VR City and National Theater of London, involved in the project so uh through a series of events that i will not detail for lack of time um they came on board the national theater came on board to offer production support for the virtual reality process Um, the national theater has a specific studio called the immersive storytelling studio that focuses mainly on virtual reality augmented reality and new technologies uh, engaging in a way that will better put audience members into the shoes of another um, and something about the program that was specific to us and sort of special was they um, 
they have an interest in putting filmmaking tools or in this case, or virtual reality tools in the hands of theater makers um, because so often uh, virtual reality is seen as a film medium and is given to filmmakers, but it, it has certain inherently theatrical uh, Especially ways of expression. Especially with immersive theater. Yeah. Um, it, I like to describe it as uh, the spectrum between theater and film. Uh, if you were to pluck it in the middle and let both of those sides fall uh, where they they're met, um, traveling up the spectrum at the same pace, you would land at virtual reality and immersive theater somewhere around the same time. So was VR the easiest part then, would you say? Um, yes and no. It had sort of the most institutional support. Obviously, the National Theater is a well-oiled, massive, yeah. beautiful machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and VR City works like its own beautiful machine. Yeah, they're much older than us, and they yeah. have a lot more experience. And uh, and and they're sort of uh, they're sort of the best in their field. I mean, the National Theater is like the premier theater in in the UK. Um, and so they they really sort of took not just the VR project, but I'd say the whole project to another level, um, sort of lifted, specifically the VR lifted it out of obscurity and sort of potentially onto a broader stage. Um, the tougher part about having the two of them involved um, would just be that when you have a group of people who are living and working together, uh, they form such a strong bond, such a strong connection, and they work so well together, you kind of start to read everybody's mind. Everybody starts to read everybody's mind. Um, and so, you know, we're there for just over two weeks, and they don't show up until a week and a half in, and they're only there for a day. It means that you have a crew of, like, another eight to ten people who are there who are operating under the same circumstances, but now there are a whole bunch of strangers in the mix, so you're just, like, the 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 workflow becomes less psychic and more... Um, communication based. It, it was funny actually. They, the the team from VR City and the National rolled in, and uh, we opened the door to the castle, and we're like in snowmobile onesies and like eating chili out of a pot, <laughs> just like, hey guys, welcome to our Good film shoot. Morning. And we're all like on average twenty five years old, and I could tell they were just like, oh my god, what have they gotten themselves into? And um, and not that not that we conned them into it. Like the script for the for the VR segment is is good and. And and our work is always good, but there was a very homespun element to living at the castle. Um, and yeah, and we worked. I mean, we work long days. We work long hours. We put our heart into it, and we like we start, and then we don't stop until we're done. And they're like, you know, they work for a salary. They work <laughs> a job with hours in a day, and like <laughs> according to a human scale. And, um, and and so, you know, the day goes long and we're like, oh, this is our like sixth 16 hour day in a row. Like we're used to this shit. And they're like, man, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. And you can't blame them either. Yeah. As far as VR relates to filmmaking, something that, that we discovered early on in the rehearsal process. And again, we rehearsed this in the same style that we rehearsed the feature film, which is, you know, taping out the space and um, mm. and experimenting and trying different things. Um but we quickly realized that VR, um, unlike film, it's not a medium that expresses itself in cuts and in framing. Um, it's it's there. There's no there, there's full autonomy for an audience member. Um, it is uh, you are placing the audience in the center of the room and or somewhere in a room, and you cannot tell them where to look. So we're using theatrical devices like where we you know, we have a door creak or an actor crosses, not even frame, an actor crosses past their line of vision and directs their view that way. Um, mm. Yeah, this this one was especially fun to work on because Dan and I were able to separate our, like, directorial uh, um, capacities on this one in, in what seemed to me a very clear way. Like, Dan wrote it. 
Dan wrote the VR piece. He came up, I mean, it's Shakespeare's text, but he wrote the entire, like, the idea of it. We kicked around some ideas together, but, like, he took what we had and wrote the thing. It's essentially a dream sequence. Right. And then I, with my experience in the immersive theater world, was able to choreograph it from a way knowing that, like, this is where the audience is and the entire space must be active the entire time and no one should be able to see all of it at once. And so how do we choreograph something where, yes, the audience is autonomous, they can look where they want to look, but they cannot move. And so we give them one perspective and allow them to have 360 degrees within it. And then we we choreograph a, a, a scene or a series of scenes that takes place all around them in a way that was that was very familiar to me Hmm. unlike most films it has sort of inherent uh repeat watch value um you you can't really experience a vr film in one sitting you you have to go back again and again or 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 you should encourage unless there is only one thing happening and the world behind you is just the world behind you and you look and you see the mountains but the mountains aren't moving yeah so we tried to we tried to create a sort of like physical landscape that that invited people to look at you know let's say the first time you sort of look in the way that we've kind of choreographed or suggest that you look, right? The second time, maybe you only watch Hamlet, or the third time, you only watch Ophelia. The fourth time, you stare at the ceiling because there are cool things happening <laughs> above you. Um, it's it's really um, sort of like a dream that you can dive into again and again and sort of like a, you know, it's like when you when you wake up like right after the alarm goes off and you hit the snooze yeah, yeah, button yeah. and you're sort of like, I want to go back to that dream yeah, a little bit you can. and tool around. A little uh, lucid. Yeah, it's got that kind of vibe. Cool. Yeah. Well, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, I mean, really like a, a match made in heaven for you guys. Um, I guess that my final question, uh, and this might be a pretty hard question, is for you as artists, what was the most successful part of the whole experience was it the film was it the theater piece or was it the vr um for for me uh uh i'm not gonna choose Um, (laughs) no for 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 me it was the no truly for me it was the it was the rehearsal process um taylor's flipping the bird at john um uh for for me it was the rehearsal process um uh, I I have done film projects before. There has never been enough rehearsal time. The stress of rehearsing a scene on set on a timeline where you have the AD kind of breathing down your neck being like, we got to get this in five. And you're like, we haven't explored this moment to its full potential. Not only that, but like your, your shot listing is wrong because you don't really understand the beats of a scene because you haven't seen them mm-hmm. fully expressed in a rehearsal space. Um, that's a freaking nightmare. And, and I would never make another film. I may never make another film. Um, <laughs> uh, I would never make another film without uh, this amount of rehearsal time. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, for me, I'm going to evade that question as well. Okay, um, great. With a brief anecdote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> really helping out our cause at No Film <laughs> You got it. Um during the immersive show, uh, there, there, uh, the the geography of the castle is such that the fourth floor, the entire floor of the castle, is the castle keep, upon which there is a wooden staircase that leads up to the. Or no, no, the fifth floor is the gallery up above the castle keep, upon which there is a wooden staircase that leads up to the sixth floor, which we used as Hamlet's bedroom. It's the top of the castle. Um, so uh, the moment just before to be or not to be is is kind of a larger speech that we had uh, placed inside the castle keep. And then Hamlet walks out up the stairwell into the gallery and then up into Hamlet's bedroom. Followed by the Earl of Ross. 
potentially followed by the Earl of Ross. The real Earl of Ross, not a character. No, no, not, the, not, the not actual just, Earl. Not Shakespeare's Earl of Ross <laughs> yeah. from Macbeth, from although Macbeth. we did ask. <laughs> but uh, the real one, the modern one. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so the, the choreo- choreography of it um, meant that more often than not, audience members followed you know, follow follow the the motion filled characters. Um, however, in the on the second night or the the last night of the immersive performance, because we only had two, um, I finished that monologue. I walked up. I got to Hamlet's bedroom. It was completely empty. I waited for a moment. I waited for another moment. I knew my time cue was going to happen before too long, and I had to start this monologue. And I did all of To Be or Not To Be completely alone by myself in that room. And that moment was hugely successful for me because artistically that was very fulfilling. The The point of this whole thing to me was to make something real from the very beginning idea of like creating a world where nobody even has to see it. We just go and experience it and it's real. And this was a moment of like coming back to that um, wherein Hamlet walked up to his bedroom, spoke a speech to no one about whether to live or die and then carried on. <laughs> and, and I like to think that moments like that made the performances in the film better. And having sort of multiple approaches to an artistic endeavor can support each other in that way. Cool. Well, you did a great job of avoiding those questions to kind of Thank bring you. it back together. To Thank you, John. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and I wish you guys the best of luck. The film is Hamlet, <laughs> which is weird to say, but it's Hamlet. Hamlet in the, go- Hamlet in the Golden Hamlet Vale. Hamlet in the Golden Vale. Okay, great. And uh, I wish you guys the best of luck with it. And hopefully I'll see you on the festival circuit next year. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whichever podcast platform you prefer, because we're on all of them. And give us five stars on iTunes. Stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly, as always, this Thursday. I'm John Fusco, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And you can follow No Film School at No Film School. See you Thursday.